Okay. Number 14, April Warnick. Hello and welcome to another episode of Winners Only Club, the podcast. Today is a privilege, honor, and pleasure to have April Gornick with us. This is a podcast for entrepreneurs, business owners, people who are making a change, carving a path in society. Now, April, I've known since a long, long time ago, but I remember the article I read about you when I was in Boston was how you were saving the cinema. So I would like you to introduce yourself. Today we're at the church in Sag Harbor and I'm with April Gordick. Well, I'm an artist first and foremost, I'm always. And um, I've been an artist for, you know, since I got out of school and moved to New York and started showing the gallery there. I mean, before that, obviously, everybody's you're sort of born an artist. Um, and I've had many consecutive one-person shows and we'll be having one next September, actually 2023. So I'm working very hard on that, but I also have another full-time job that's self-imposed, which is as a community activist. And I ended up um, being given the opportunity by fate to um, ended up chairing the effort to buy and rebuild the Sag Harbor Cinema, which was a very old cinema in the center of the little village that I live adjacent to. Um, it is an historic, it has an historic facade from 1938, an old Art Deco facade, when um, people who designed cinemas were actually using cheap materials to do so. Um, and that's because it was taking place immediately after the Depression. So one of the problems with the fire is that when the fire came through the cinema, it did not start in it. It actually devastated it um, quite severely because there were no um, outside walls in the lobby. It had just been built against adjacent buildings. So just a curious historical fact for your listeners and viewers that um, it was, it was actually something that I had been asked to spearhead by the owner the previous summer before the fire happened, but the fact of the fire, um, bad as it was, also mobilized the community because it was, after the fire, a charred shell. It looked like a horrible missing tooth and otherwise healthy myth <laughs> that people were anxious to um, fix and make better and save. So, and that was about a four or five year process of, of not only getting people to support it financially, and Eric, my husband Eric, official good bless him, was the first person that stepped up and said, what about if I, if we gave a million dollars to kick this off and made it happen? And I was really aghast because I mean, obviously that's so much money, but he was perfectly willing to dip into our savings and get the whole project going, and that was inspirational for a lot of people. So, and then, um, not to make this sound as if it were my thing only, I had tremendous help from all these uh, people who, um, a woman that I'd known for a while, from other community activist things, who, um, is a lawyer and worked incredibly hard on it. Other members of the community from different disciplines, people with good hearts, and money came from very wealthy donors, and then also from a little girl who came to us when we were sitting at a table at a festival that was happening down at the harbor, and you know gave gave the people who are working the table trying to raise awareness about this effort, 35 cents. So, and it, it all mattered. Like yeah. literally everybody who contributed um, made a difference. And that's the way I've always felt about this community and the importance of how to acknowledge a community and also how to knit it together by acknowledging it as, as this place where everybody counts. It's, it was a very hard thing to do, and it was fraught with a lot of crises, as things like this always are. 
there were problems with the construction of the cinema that needed to be repaired, extra expenses. I mean, without this this woman, we had the great good fortune of having a woman named Julia Daniel of Milan, um, part of an original community, actually, that tried to buy the cinema um, years previous to the fire, like seven years previous to the fire. And she and I were on that committee together. So she had, she had come over and helped reconstruct the cinema. And she gave just invaluable advice about making sure that the, each theater in the cinema, which had had only one big screen, um, now, had, now we were building three, you know, a small screening room, um, a medium-sized theater, and then the large kind of premier state-of-the-art that's theater one. And she insisted on making them state-of-the-art. Each one has an extraordinary sound and screen. And that offers people not only of this community who deserve it, because there's a tremendous amount of cultural appreciation within this population, but also anybody else who comes to the theater will be blown away and they'll see movies as the directors and cine cinematographers and writers would have hoped that a movie could be seen. So we're very, very proud of the way it turned out. And it was a huge, 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 huge thing. I can tell by how knowledgeable you are on the subject that how involved you must have been in the restoration. I am wondering if it wasn't a historical building, if it wasn't a historical landmark, would you be as eager to have contributed your time and energy and money and so much of your effort? The cinema is an odd and very specific feature of the town because the Art Deco sign that's in front of it that says Sag Harbor, it's very Art Deco, it's very classic Art Deco. Um, and that sign is, never mind the history even, but that sign tends for most people to represent both the, the kind of quirkiness, the specific, unique quality of Sackhart. The whimsicalness. Whimsical, it's also home. I mean, I know I've talked to many people who say that when they go on a trip, even if they're coming back from JFK or something, when they get back to Sag Harbor, they just like to go down Main Street because they just want to see the sign and feel like they're really mad. So all of those things and its history, and I love the history of Sag Harbor, which is quirky and bizarre, and there's crazy stories associated with it, actually. Like, I, I could tell you some amazing stories about the history of this place which I got very, very absorbed in and actually did a walking tour of Sag Harbor, so, which is just a free app that you can go and kind of peruse. Um, but running into all these crazy things about how Sag Harbor survived many booms and busts. It had the first integrated, it has one of the first integrated communities in America. And I really mean integrated, it's Native American, it's African-American, and it's um, principally white Irish immigrants at the time that it first formed. But it's remained an integrated community for all this time since the, since the 1830s and 40s, when people came here, some to escape the, um, the potato famine, of course, in Ireland. But a lot of the members of the black and Native American community there became great whalers and traveled the world on whaling ships and you know were some of the first people to be in the Pacific. So it's it's just it's a remarkable, remarkable place. And the cinema and its sign and the even the kind of for a lot of people here after 1978, when the owner from whom we bought the cinema um, had first purchased it himself, they started showing like European, what we call European art films. You know, so there is a whole history of that. So it was seen as an, a kind of an eccentric anchor of the village. 
and it's, it's just really, really part of something that says that Harbor and needs to be held on to. When I was doing some field research for the six-year anniversary of the cinema coming back, someone said that a homeless man set it on fire. What's the story behind that? Homeless man? Set it on fire. No, it is, it was, it was not arson. It was definitely not arson. I've talked to many members of the Sag Harbor Fire Department and Police Department about this. It was um, not a mere accident. It was most likely, there, somebody had suggested that it was a tenant in an adjoining building that was smoking a bed or something of that nature. But what had happened was there had been work done on a, um, some wiring, some electrical wiring on a pole outside that was sort of catty-quartered from the cinema back to the parking lot. And the work was not completed. There was very high wind. There may have been sparks generated. It came from most likely that. But, and it went, it went through the corner of the block where the cinema is situated. And it, if, if, you were, if this is the cinema, this is the corner. The, the pole was here. And there's a direct line, partly from the wind direction. It was, it was very cold that day. It was like way, way, way below zero. Firemen were fighting a fire. And we had like hundreds of people from all over the island come and show up. Many fire engines, many different um, fire houses from all over. There are notorious photos of firemen fighting a fire with icicles literally hanging from their helmets. It was insanely cold and they just toughed it out. No one was hurt. Um, and there was also <clears throat> a great opportunity for loss of life from some of the, some of the, not only for the couple of residents that lived where the fire had passed through, most of them, all of them got out, one hadn't been there. Anyway, and then um, there was a young, there were a couple of young, less experienced firemen that actually could have died, but for a fire person who'd been there and noticed that a, a floor was about to collapse and rushed them out. So we have, we're very blessed to have one of the oldest volunteer fire departments in the country. It's, it's really significant. and. These people are so brave. It was just unbelievable the work that they did to make sure that no one was hurt. And they continue to be like that. You're also behind the affordable housing project. And last April, you held, oh, last April, last April, April held a conference, a convention about the affordable housing project. We did, we, I'm not, I'm not behind any particular affordable housing project, I hasten to add. Um, but I am definitely concerned, like everyone else in this village, about affordable housing and the future of both workforce housing and also housing for people who've lived here all their lives because we're, we're being priced out by a certain amount of overdevelopment, which um, is, has been galloping and I hope it's slowing down. A lot of people who spent the pandemic here have gone back to New York but um, Sag Harbor became very, very popular during that time, and um, there were efforts to buy people out of homes that were, some of those people, I'm pretty sure, received less money than their homes were actually worth by people offering them cash. And there's, there was a lot of opportunity seen here. So that, coupled with rising rents, because of the popularity, has threatened the fabric of this village. And it's, there was a very moving, I mean, profoundly moving um, letter that was written to the San Carver Express, which is our local paper, by a man named Tom Gardella, who is a fireman and is now the deputy mayor and works as a liaison with the police. And he was actually in the cinema. Told me stories about it, which are harrowing. 
but he also had written a letter to the Express saying that he was afraid that his children couldn't stay in San Carlo even if they wanted to because they couldn't afford to live here. And that made me insane. I just thought it was one of the most moving, sad things I'd ever read. So one of the reasons, one of the inspirations for the housing um, conference day that we held last May was to bring um, people together so we could talk about the problems that this village faces and also the problems that um, communities internationally are facing because of the disparity between haves and have-nots. So keeping the cinema is to preserve historical landmark. At the same time, building a workforce, housing, destroys historical landmark. Does that make sense? Um, no one is talking about um, building something on an historical landmark for affordable housing. I don't know where that idea came from, but that's not part of the plan. Like the trees are being chopped down. There's a problem with clear-cutting in this village, but that's separate of that. There has been um, a problem with clear-cutting all over the East End. A lot of uh, developers who come in, and I won't name names, but a lot of well-known developers will go to a lot, um, completely clear-cut old-growth old trees, um, and will just absorb the minor penalties that are on the books for that kind of law-breaking by fitting it into their construction costs and ignoring it. And that is something that um, not only is, has North Haven just passed a law about that, but um, the Sag Harbor uh, village government just last night, actually, the village meeting that I attended said that they were um, trying to enact new clear-cutting laws that would at least try to mitigate that. And it remains to be seen how they do that. I think that there need to be big fines to do that. But that, that has nothing to do with affordable housing and historical buildings. We can have it all. <laughs> we can have, oh, awesome. we can have, we can preserve our history. We can make affordable housing. So yeah. affordable housing will not cause the destruction of historical landmark is that harbor? No. no, because there's there's um, various areas in the village that I, actually the same person that I just referenced, Tom Gardella, um, the deputy mayor, recently made a proposal that he had researched and worked out with the people and organizations that this idea would principally impact and um, has spoken to, there's a, a nature preserve um, south of the village that has land that's village owned by the village government. And he's proposing shifting some property from where the extant largest firehouses and main firehouses, moving some stuff over there, making room there for affordable housing. We, f we feel that we can um, arrive at creative solutions. Most people and I feel that we can arrive at creative solutions to the housing crisis and historic preservation. There need not be a false um, choice between those things. But it takes, it takes a lot of transparency and it takes a lot of conversation so people understand what the needs are, what the problems are, and how the solutions can be be beneficial to everybody. I certainly wouldn't want, personally, I wouldn't want there to be like a, some sort of congested area where you'd expect all the people that serve dinner at restaurants to like squish you, in. You wouldn't want a shopping mall, that makes no sense. Absolutely not. There's, there has been talk um, on the part of a previous mayor about um, there being a second Main Street behind Main Street. Our Main Street is very, very unique. We have a five and dime. We have a few large buildings, but principally small, quirky stores that have great merchandise and it's 
Some of it's very expensive and some of it's very affordable. And it's that variety, um, that kind of unique and sustained variety. For instance, the Five and Dime is 100 years old as of last year, 2022, as a, as a Five and Dime. So we have this really fantastic mix of stores and there's no reason that we can't you know, keep that going. But people have to be able to afford their rents yeah. Landlords have to not go crazy. But $2,000 is still not really affordable. $2,000, where, where are you getting that? The community survey. I did some survey with the residents, and they are saying it's $2,000 for the lowest level of housing. Um, yeah, we, we have to deal with all of that. But no, we're just really starting to seriously tackle yeah. this. So Adam, and I'm not at the village. No. Oh, I know you're not. You're definitely not. But you're a pillar of the community. Someone like you and someone like, well, okay, actually, I don't know the politics too much, to be honest. So Adam Pollard, he's a friend or no? He's a friend or he, he's a friend of Bay Street? Um, I, don't, I don't know whose friend he is. I'm just going to leave it at that. You're from Ohio. Yep. One of my clients is also from Ohio, and he was the one who said, that there is a huge Ohio community in Sag Harbor. What do you think about that? Huge? Yeah. Um, <laughs> He's like... I mean, there's everywhere I've ever lived outside of Ohio, there's yeah. always people from Ohio there. I mean, certainly when I was, you know, living in New York and Manhattan full-time, there were always a lot of people from Ohio. But there always are a lot of people from Ohio. It's a great place to be. It's a great place to leave. <laughs> it's... What are some characteristics of Ohio people? Not to generalize, because... That's not fun, but when people say New Yorkers, there are blah, 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 blah. What are some traits or ideas people say about Ohio, Ohioans? Ohioans, <laughs> I think um, they're generally considered friendly, maybe a little too friendly, maybe compared to people in Manhattan, they're a little more, you know, population friendly, but they're fine with me. Tell us how you got from, by the way, those clients are Grindstone. The entire Grindstone team are from Ohio. Are they really? Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Do you do the social media for the church? I don't. We do, I mean, we do some stuff. We, actually, one of, one of the things that we did for the cinema to raise money was to go and talk to shop owners and say, like, what does this mean to you? But, um, no, I mean, we have, we have a social media presence, principally Insta, but... Do you have a marketing strategy? Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, we, you know, we're, we're less than two years old, so we're still kind of working on how we're doing this, where we're quitting most of our efforts. We are the church you're speaking of now. Yeah. We're, a, we're in a building and we're a place and we're a place for actual physical interaction. So we tend not to be, um, we're not gonna make our principal efforts be towards social media. You have a different job and a different goal. And you know, for you, social media is the part of the, the message you tend. Um, for us, it's just an adjunctable thing, and not like a principal. So for you, social media is to bring awareness to the church or establish a social media presence. Yeah, but I mean, we also love, we like, for instance, the first thing that we had at the church ever was um, one of the Graham Dance Company who came. That was at the whole company. It was like six of them and in sort of in two batches. But they came and, and rehearsed, and they were working on a lost piece that Martha Graham had choreographed. They were trying to reconstruct it as a new piece, and it was successful, it was great. But we streamed rehearsals and streamed some interviews about them. And, you know, we, tried to, we tried to expand our reach by using social, and then we have a YouTube channel that has um, talks and whatnot, some performances that we've given. We understand people are busy, so we try to allow them to see things. How did you go from Ohio 
to Canada to here. I had I had gone to the Cleveland Institute of Art for art classes, and the Cleveland Institute of Art um, is a five-year college, and I actually got tired of being there and wanted something more. There was an article in Art in America magazine, which I think still exists, called, Is This the Greatest Art School in North America? And it was about the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design, which I'd heard about because it was famous at that time. It was a school famous for conceptualism. That was like in 1976. And I just kind of jumped ship the last year because I thought, I don't want to stay here anyway. And I got my BFA from there. That's where I met Eric. Um, and it was, it was pretty impulsive when I think about it because I applied in June. I'm <laughs> just like, I was like, I'm out of here. And then ended up there and it was a big adventure. And then from there, I ended up staying a little bit longer, waitressing and whatnot. Then moved down to New York, um, ultimately with Eric, although he was not inclined to make that move originally. Um, and we've been in this section of the country ever since. Why Sag Harbor and not another hamlet of the Hamptons? Well, we had actually, Eric, um, after we'd been living in New York for, I guess, like five or seven or eight years, he was just feeling so antsy and really wanted to place outside the city. I mean, it is, you know, Manhattan in the summer is sweaty and sticky and we just wanted to get out of town and he wanted to buy something. So we ended up buying a small house here. We rented um, a little bit before then and the house we found was in Sick Harbor and it was a sweet old farmhouse not far from here. and. We subsequently, just to like kind of fast forward, we would, you know, spend at first like two months here in the summer, and then it was three months, and then by the time we ended up moving out here full time, it was like at least six months that we were spending here and not in the city. And <clears throat> we were renovating our loft um, to be more like the house that we subsequently built out here new house that we built in 1999. It had a great studio set up and we realized that we prefer to be here than there so we decamped quietly. <laughs> we just told our friends, oh yeah we'd be back normally in May but you know the, the, the loft was finished being renovated in March and we just said oh We'd be coming back out of May anyway, so we're just going to stay here. We'll move back next year. And then we never really did. I mean, we spent time, but that's how we ended up living in this house full time in 2004. The name of this podcast is called Winners Only Club. What's your definition of a winner and what's your definition of a loser? <laughs> My definition of a winner would be someone who's happy with their life. And I don't, I don't care how that manifests itself, but it's not about things that you get or whatever. I think a winner is like things that you get, like you get acknowledgement or something. Loser, I would think of Donald Trump. He's the absolute definition of a loser. But, um, but as far as, you know, what, the other factor when you ask that, that I think about is, you know, if you're a winner in the art world or a loser in the art world, that's much more complicated because everybody, all artists I know are, well, I'd say 99% of the artists that I know are hard on themselves, like you're, on, you're your own worst critic. So it's hard to be a winner in your own eyes entirely, but just to be able to be an artist and make a living, wow, win, you know, so, to me, winner and loser is just way too much of a sliding scale and a fluctuating denotation to you know, think about or take it seriously. But not that it's not a good question, because it begs all of those things. What makes you the best at what you do? I, the best what? <laughs> the best April who likes to make social changes and 
is the person behind the church and paints landscapes that especially, specifically, strange nature settings. Like what makes you do that? Like what makes you the best at, like for instance, what makes me the best at being Lulu? What makes you the best at being you? What makes you the best at doing whatever the things that you do? Because if you weren't the best at what you do, you wouldn't be a guest here. I think that the thing that's, I won't say best, but I will say that I think that the thing that's most important is trying to keep my perspective always changing and flexible so that I think of things in different ways all the time and try to see issues, issues in art and spirituality, try to push myself to think of things differently constantly. like. Look, try to find an angle that I haven't seen something from before. It's just to be, in other words, to try to be expansive. And I mean that practically and also spiritually, if that makes sense. Art banter. You paint landscapes. Yep. Why not portraits? I, you know, I, it's something that um, I into, uh, it felt accidental, but I clued into it um, in 1978 or 9, and I started painting landscapes and immediately thought, oh no, I'm doing something that's so unpopular and so, and so retarded terror and you know, like, wrong for the time. Because in school, I always tried to be really responsive to what was trending. Like that was really, really important to me. But I actually loved painting light and space and landscapes, things outside of myself, so much that I looked for excuses to do it, or you know, somehow or another, I let myself keep doing that, and then it evolved into something for which I got some good responses, and then. Um, I think that landscape for me represents something that metaphorically can hold a spiritual state and something that, that allows other people to reflect themselves, but in a very um, flexible way, like many people can look at the same work and have an entirely different reaction, hopefully an emotional reaction, and not just uh, this is pretty, this is that. I mean, I try to make work that hold, holds a certain amount of questions built into it. So, and, that, and by questions, I don't mean like a literal question, but that would invite a certain perusal of tension and release and something that's grounded and heavy versus something that's very light. Just like, holds a lot of um, potentially contradictory things within it. To me, that's kind of a, a sense of spirituality. I guess, because that's what I do. <laughs> that's, what, that's what my work says to me. What's the difference between spirituality and religion? Well, I think that religion ascribes to a, a certain, tends to ascribe spirituality a certain formulation, and um, oftentimes, rule-making, sometimes really great rules like do unto others, and sometimes less great rules like you won't get it into heaven unless you're up, <laughs> whatever the religion is. So um, it's, it's, it's a, religion is for nervous people who are scared that people won't stay in their religion, and spirituality is for people who seek to find their soul reflected in the world outside themselves. I don't know better way to describe it. But it, it does not have to do with having to do things a certain way. And I, I mean, contradictions are decisive. April. Mm -hmm. What about strange weather conditions interest you? You know, I, there's, I think that there's something really sensual and physical and enormous about weather and weather behavior and being able to stand in front of a two-dimensional surface 
and take that in from such a small size compared to what it's depicting just has like a, I mean, it's deliciously physical and moving to me. It's always been. I mean, as a little kid, I would always go outside before storms and hope to see tornadoes <laughs> as a child. This is a really long, long interest of mine. Um, I, I, I can't really, I mean, whether, and then, you know, like apocalyptic weather or threatening weather or even just an eerie kind of weather situation, I think talks about mortality. And mortality is something that I like to work with as a subject matter, a metaphorical subject matter, but it's in a lot of the work that I do, very obviously. You know, ominous, is the storm coming or is the storm going? I mean, it's, it's just like this long, 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 long meditation that I'm having about uh, my place in the world and, and the way that I see it outside of myself. How old were you when you picked up your first paintbrush? Oh, I don't know. I think I was, you know, I had probably those, what they called praying watercolors. They were just really simple watercolors that I probably had when I was really little, and temp like little tempera paints. And I always like to, I always like to make things. I draw and paint and, you know, just make things out of, I draw, I draw animals on cardboard and then you know, cut them out and make them play together. <laughs> just like, it was very animal-centric. And I think that for, that was sort of like an entity that I was comfortable with as a child. And then the older I got, the more it was like the, the world outside of myself in general it became like kind of a, a larger proscenium or a larger context or something. Really bad weather conditions bring me comfort. Mm, it makes me feel at ease. Oh, interesting. What do you feel about that? I, it makes sense to me just because it's like, um, I, I don't know what your childhood was like at all, but I had a lot of anxiety as a child. And I had very um, tense home life. And I think I relate to what you're saying in that I would say that for me, seeing a storm coming is like, finally the storm's coming. Instead <laughs> of it being like this kind of impending life that, um, yeah, was everywhere but not happening. So yeah, yeah. and then an actual downpour is almost like letting emotion yeah. out. So, and then something with the downpour and that's an impending whatever, and you know, like making multiple kinds of um, opportunities like that in a painting is it's a great sense of release of expression for me. So I relate to what you're saying. Anticipation is often scarier than the actual event. Isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Cool. I am wondering, when it comes to painting, for, because you know, this podcast is going now towards the direction of entrepreneurs and business people. Last time when we met in person with Almond being the presenter, I asked her afterwards, do you think artists are entrepreneurs? Question mark. And she said, of course. So. I guess some advice for people, because your paintings have been to so many places I can't even list. How do you get started if you are an artist in today's world without having it shown any show yet? How do you do that? Boy, what a question. I, I'm really not sure because I think that the, the social media universe has completely changed the way artists direct themselves in the world get their work shown, it really is through. I mean, JPEGs used to be useful, now JPEGs are practically the art. One thing that, I'm, that I really love about having the church here and doing shows like the one that we're sitting in is that people can have the experience of the physicality of a work of art. And I think it's really, really important that children learn to use their hands um, that are given art classes, they learn to make that connection between their hand and their eye. 
and and are allowed to fulfill something using their bodies. I think that the physical experience of art is extremely important. And I've, I have even a, a little essay that should be on my website still, I think it is, about visual literacy and how important it is that to see the scale of something in relation to your body, because people are all about, adults are all more or less the same size. So a work of art in proportion to you is meaningful, and an artist choosing a certain scale of work is meaningful. And then the physicality of the way that it's been touched by a hand with a brush, or a hand with a pencil, or a hand in clay, like all of that transmits, especially if you have any kind of art experience yourself. And I don't, I don't think it needs to be elaborate. I think you can, you can convey a lot of that by just giving children stuff to do with their hands, stuff to make through those kinds of mediums. But I hope that, you know, much as I love my computer for sketching, I don't want that to go away. I think that that's really critical. So young artists today, who are forced to convey what they're doing with JPEGs. And there's probably our reading of JPEGs as a, as a world community has improved a lot because we're forced to, and people are probably better and better at doing it. And that's significant, but to completely lose the experience of seeing work in real, I mean, I can't tell you how many shows I, I look at online and they look really great and if I see them in person I'm really blown away. It's just a different imagine seeing Carrie James Marshall's show at the Met Boyer when it was up only in JPEGs. That would have been like such a loss because his touch and his services is so important. So Yeah. So I I worry about artists having to do things through social completely and not being able to have that backup. But, but artists still do their shows, obviously, so it's not like galleries are abandoning everything in terms of making everything online. You named the church the church. Was it because of convenience or other reasons? <laughs> the church, this church was named the church because it was, it was Deconsecrated like 12 or 14 or something years before we bought it. And the, the Methodists who owned it ran out of money and a congregation basically. So they felt that they were forced to put it on the market and they did. And then what happened subsequently was that it um, was owned by three different people during which time at various times, it was just, most of the time, there was a hurricane fence out front with some green, you know, that green plastics that they put on it. And then the church loomed over the street with tarps in the windows. And when we first saw it, bits of snow sneaking through. And it was just a really sad sight. And every single person in Sag Harbor would, when they wanted to talk about it, would say, do you know what's happening? church. When are they going to finish the church? Did they sell it again? I can't believe the church sold again. The church, the church, the church, the church. So when we bought it, my people went, I can't believe you bought the church. And they said to Eric, I think we just have to call it the church because everybody calls it that. And not really for any particular reason of hoping that there would be some spiritual impact or anything, but I should think it kind of has. If there was like some fundamental spirituality, people being in a space and bonding together, having a shared experience. And as you know, most churches are not doing as well as they used to, but, but this hunger for a community at the moment is pretty significant. I mean, maybe it's, maybe it's not a bad name, but not that we want to tread on anyone's religious experience or the importance of an actual religious church to them. In no way, shape, or form are we making, uh, you know, light of that. We, we, you know, respect, just, you know, respect, period. It was in service before you bought it, or no? 
It was an active church for like years and years. It was built actually in 18, it was built in 1835 and it was moved here in 1864 and it was added onto. Um, ironically, it had been, it had been built in Greek revival style about five blocks away up a big hill on High Street because yeah, it was high. And then um, the parishioners and the, the people that ran it decided that they wanted it to be in a more central location and not up a steep icy hill for the winter. I think was a little bit part of it. And they moved it down here, as I said, 29 years later. And by the time they moved it down here, Greek revival style was so over. Like no one was building Greek revival. That was just say the Italian eight was very popular. So to it was added the stone foundation, which looked more Italian. And then they also added the cupola tower. And to have a clock tower was more like, you know, Italian, the way you imagine an Italian church. So it, it had Italianate hybridization, I would say. And in fact, the, the clock tower, because it had been an addition when we bought it, was leaning out like six degrees into the street, um, had been leaning. And at the moment that we bought it, from the last owners who had it, they put in a lot of um, steel reinforcement, which was a great like, piece of luck for us, actually. What does that do? Well, you put in steel reinforcement or something like that because you want to not only stop it from leading into the street, you want to pull it back to uh -huh. the rest of the building. So gotcha. they had to do that with a lot of steel. There's, if you look at some of the, like see the, the beams up there? These beams in the church are like 50 feet long. They're made from 300-year-old pine. Oh. And yeah, it's really pretty amazing. And then the, the steel girders that you see, which we've painted a very quiet color to kind of blend in, are the things that are, um, and you can see brackets on some of the rafter where they join and stuff. That's all stuff that made the church um, properly before so we could have a lot of people in it. We had to, we had to sister Joyce the floors. I know a lot about building because of the cinema and the church. If you're watching this video right now, you can see exactly all the brackets that April is talking about. So what are your future dreams for you and the church? Oh, well, we, one very immediate thing is um, we definitely want to have more programming for the, the Spanish-speaking people who live here. We have a very large population of um, people from everywhere. Central and South America, and we need to, and Puerto Rico as well, so we need to make sure that we have um, better access for them. That's a long standing goal. Um, you'll see that the wall tags for all the pieces are in Spanish and English, but we haven't gotten far enough. We need to do our website in Spanish, and we're holding up a little bit because we want to redo the website anyway. And um, we, I think that we have started on. The path that we envisioned. So a lot of it's just becoming more expansive, um, making sure that we have. I mean, it's it's not about it's not about finishing something or arriving at something. It's always going to be expanding and and serving the needs of the community that's changing too. So that I mean, the Spanish thing is something that I just wanted to say because it's been a goal of mine since we started talking about the church, but I think that the fact that we have so many different kinds of representations of creativity here is very much what we always wanted and dreamed of, and we have been pretty successful considering the length of time we've been open, and I think the impact on the community, I think people feel that the church helps shore up what, one of the great things about this community. And one of the great things is that there have always been people who made things in Sacramento. We manufactured um, ropes for ships. We made silverware. We, you know, it's a working town, and it's a town that's proud of its work. And um, art is part of that. Writing is a 
big part of that, because we've always had tremendous amount of great writers here. And the people who've been attracted to this place, including um, George Balanchine, who's one of the portraits on the window, for instance. Um, there's just a really broad range of creatives. And one of my particular interests, too, is to have um, these creativity conferences at least once a year that include programming with people whose work also involves creativity that are not always acknowledged as such, like scientists, like entomologists, like dream researchers. Their last, our last, um, our first creativity conference, and last one involved a, a woman who did um, pandemic dream research as well as regular dream research and charted in the effect of the pandemic on the culture through that. We had a, one, a, a doctor who is an extreme weather condition doctor, climate condition doctor, who has been to Everest many times, has been to the bottom of the sea with astronauts. We have you know, some people who do interesting things like that. We want to bring them forward to show, because I think through them, Anybody can realize like how creative you have to be throughout your day. I think people have people have an opportunity for more satisfaction in their lives if they realize how much creativity they can call on and that they're being called for, even if they they're not really aware of it. People need to give themselves credit for creative solutions in their own lives the church, a place that is nourishing creativity. Yes, yes. I think so. Thank you so much for joining us on another episode of Winners Only Club, and thank you, April, for coming on the show. Thank you, Thank you for having me very much. Thanks to your audience for listening.